1: Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host, Wharton Feinsworth, Jeremy Siegel, is off for the day. Please note, I'm a registered representative foreside fund services. Our discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products and the views of our guests are their own and not those of wisdom twitch affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show for you today. We're going to be talking with Jamie McLaughlin, who's the founder and CEO of JH McLaughlin Co., which is a, a management consulting firm for the wealth management space. He has a really interesting background and, and does a lot of interesting work that we're going to talk about his views on where clients can get good advice and and how he his role in that but jamie welcome to behind the markets
0: thank you jeremy glad to be here why
1: don't you tell our listeners uh a little bit about yourself um and sort of your experience in the industry i, I see in terms of you know firms you've run been ceo of the geller family office the convergent wealth all sorts of different firms in the leadership but why don't you tell at least a little bit about yourself
0: well, thanks. I had a you know I had a long run in the industry for thirty years, and about ten years ago started a management consulting firm to solve problems. I, I'd like to say the center of the fairway are for the firms that are trying to serve larger, more complex wealth. We use the term ultra high net worth now. Uh, it's in that area that I'd like to say I apply my wisdom, I hope at times, and solutions that uh, uh, really have proven to be challenging for the firms that want to be in that segment. I was at some great firms in my career, Sanford, Bernstein, Mellon prior to the Mecca New York deal, and a wonderful RIA called Lydian that became Convergent. And then, as you mentioned, I was CEO at Geller Family Office Services. So, um, you know, I've been across the industry uh, a long time and I had, a, I had an operating role. And I'm using that experience to, to help sea uh, level people solve problems.
1: What are some of those problems that are, are highest of the radar? What's, what do you say is the common thread of the, the sort of number one challenge these, these type of firms are, are coming to you for?
0: Well, my prism is is largely um, focused on firm economics. Uh, so I'll mention that first. And then there's a, a second view, same prism on the issue from the point of view of the client. From the firm level, economics are have proven to be really challenging. It's hard to get operating leverage when every client that walks in the door has some customized requirement that the firm uh, is serving idiosyncratic needs. And so it's really hard to have work processes and or productivity technology that serves them that can give them the solutions they need and frankly for the firm, make a reasonable profit, a reasonable margin. And that's proven to be very hard. However, separately, and this is a remarkable thing, Uh, my view is that clients, if I take that prism, largely uh, have no idea what differentiates the firms that they might select, have no idea of the different types of firms, have no way to know who can truly serve their larger, as I say, complex needs. So I think investors are confused, and I think the firms are challenged to be profitable.
1: Uh, Our CEO has often made a statement that the the target client that you're talking to this ultra high net worth gets the worst advice in the industry. You know, they put in all these complex hedge funds and high fee things. Um, Any, any view on, on, on why that might be the case, you know, that there's this appeal to complexity to serve that, that segment.
0: Well, let's make sure we define the segment uh, carefully. And I, I think there's some general terms that are, bandied around, I'm I'm going to use the $30 million mark, but that really does not speak to the true great wealth that's been uh, increasing, pronounced great wealth that's been made in this, uh, particularly in this country in the last 20 years, uh, that's greater than $100 million. But at that point, $100 million or more, you have the ability to take risk or, in the case of uh, uh, alternatives, uh, accept a certain degree of illiquidity. Uh, in return for some presumptive return. So in terms of trying to get to those clients, there are a number of firms who either can deliver because they're in the process of what I think of as the asset management business. They're in the process of manufacturing and distributing product for a fee. Or alternatively, you're in the business of providing advice. And I think it's that, that clear delineation that is today, maybe the largest trend that's separating those firms that are delivering uh, product versus those that are delivering essentially advice and solutions. And so to the point that they sometimes don't get the best advice, uh, the question is what level of advice? Are we talking about investment advice or are we talking about non-investment advice? And just to add, this, this is key, uh, it's really hard to be differentiated in delivering investment uh, presumptive alpha. Uh, it's uh, harder to deliver non-investment services. And so in both cases, if you can do the integrated delivery, uh, it's proven to be very, very hard. Uh, staff complements uh, have to be built to serve those non-investment services. So yeah, it's really hard to deliver solutions. It's, as I said before, it's just as hard to make money out it.
1: So when uh, when you're when you're looking when you're talking to some of these um, firms, is there a, a type of firm you'd say? Well, certainly targeting that that high net worth segment, but is there a group that that's using you more than others? Like, how would you describe that firm that that's coming to you?
0: You know, it's interesting. Um, we have to take a long view on this. Uh, we didn't have this level of wealth. Uh, when I started in the industry, we didn't even use the term family office. Well, for that matter, we didn't use the term wealth management when I started. Uh, There were investment advisors and there were people that provided investment advice, either as portfolio managers and or in some role of distribution, selling other people's products. Um, The industry has really changed. And today, I think to the notion that there are these complex needs on both wealth Management, non-investment services, investment services. We see different models emerging, and just to really try to dumb it down, keep it simple. Although I think there's many different ways to look at it, I take the prism of the regulatory types of firms, and so I'll just—I mean—they're—they're pretty intuitive. They're commercial banks that have private banking divisions, largely. Some have trust divisions. They're broker-dealers, including the big wirehouses, and I'd add to the wirehouses Goldman. J.P. Morgan Private Bank, City Private Bank, those kinds of firms that operate as broker-dealers. Uh, there's a small group, a small group, but an important group called trust companies. They're non-depository, typically independent trust companies. And then there's this big, massive group of firms known as registered investment advisors, RIAs, that are emerging, really emerging as a class. They're getting a lot of attention, uh, but they don't have any capital. But the fact is, I think they're They're probably best positioned to capture demand because they're in the business of providing advice. Not all of them. Some of them have an affiliated broker-dealer, but they're largely in the notion of the alignment with the client. Uh, They're largely in the best position to provide conflict-free advice. I I think they're probably going to be the big winners. But those are my four types of firms. And if that isn't already confusing to the audience, it's confusing to investors to try to understand the differences
1: yeah and so the the firms that are offering the real advice is, as you call it how are they pricing their services what are their trends in pricing i mean there's should sort of talk of the the race to zero in asset management um how do you how do you see the fee compression levels in the advice business for these you know for these investors and what are they what are they valuing like what are what are they really important
0: question there's no question that the race to zero in the asset management business is affecting wealth management industry there's no doubt and i'd like to separate the investment management solutions from everything else and provide um just a thought a big big thought on the math of how firms can be profitable so if there is a race to zero with the product the asset management product increasingly so for a lot of reasons uh not just passive investments but many other reasons as to why it's just hard to be differentiated i I assert that non-investment services, if you can deliver on the promise of delivering those, is a defense against a prophylactic, may I say, a defense against the loss of pricing power that's happening uh, in the asset management side of the business. And so I suggest, and this is not a radical idea, I think there's some exemplars that are experimenting it right now, I suggest that firms that want to serve these idiosyncratic needs that include non-investment services get off the the uh, the uh, spinning wheel, uh, the, the, the rat race of asset-based fees. It doesn't make any sense to have an asset-based fee when you're doing non-investment services. The question is, you might agree with that, the question is, how do you do that? What is the methodology? And I believe there are some leading firms that are beginning to set some parameters as to how they assess in their discovery what that idiosyncratic need is, and are using negotiated fees uh, to recover their true bottom-up cost to deliver those idiosyncratic needs. So I think the asset-based fee methodology for clients that are are ultra-high network makes no sense.
1: It is really interesting. I mean, I've seen a few people talk about You know, even beyond the ultra high net worth that, you know, what's the difference between somebody with a hundred thousand, a million, 10 million? If they're getting the same model, like, why should you, they be charging a, a percent, you know, a percent fee? Usually, I mean, that, that one percent fee is, is a common number across the, the RIA space. Um, and so th- this this SaaS based pricing model or sort of service based pricing model is really interesting. And and I think what I mean, how do you see if you were, if you were to give a percentage of firms RIAs that you think are pricing this way versus? I mean, I think it's it's much more common to do the fee based. But what do you? How do you think that impetus changes over time?
0: Very few RIAs are using a non asset based fee. Very very few and. Uh, well, I think that will continue to increase. There'll be some that will be looking at others. Let's make sure we, we strike the definition here that with no disrespect intended to the RAA that is working with the mass affluent or a client less than 10 million dollars, um, you get to the 10 million dollar level uh, for sure. All of the RAs are using some breakpoints or some methods of a laddered uh, approach to fees. We, I'll settle in just sort of for a, a general term that we're probably getting to 30 or 40 basis points at $50 million. We're getting to 20 basis points at $100 million. But the point you just made is, uh, what's the? De- how, how do you defend charging anything above a certain amount when the unit work for the strategic asset allocation, Im- implementation, monitoring, and selection of the underlying investments is is uh, as largely, if the strategic asset allocation is fixed, there's no new manager. What's the additional work? So what's the justification for the fee? So um, I, I spend a lot of work in this area doing pricing in the ultra high net worth space. And if you look at the ADB brochures for fees, you examine those fees. Uh, large percentage of firms don't mention numbers that get up into the stratosphere that I just mentioned. When they mention 50 or or $100 million at the top of their fee schedules, they'll often say negotiate it, meaning they're they're really admitting that it's hard to recover fees when you get to be that large. Uh, some have a negligible fee of maybe 10 basis points. but and, and there are some operations and custodial issues that are true fees that have to be absorbed. I could concede that, but it's very hard to defend a fee uh, for no additional unit work above a certain amount.
1: We're talking with Jamie McLaughlin, who is the sort of founder of, of a, a consultancy for uh, RAs and family offices on on how to structure their businesses and, and advice for that. It's it's really interesting I, in terms of these non investment services that firms are offering. I mean, what do you see as these services that you think they should be charging these non asset based fees on, and 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 what is the marketplace for this? Like, where is that? Where is the innovation occurring here?
0: Well, the service menu has. Uh, expanded just remarkably. Um, you know, i reminded when I started in the business 30 years ago, I was at Sanford Bernstein. We were an investment manager. Now, everybody was a taxable client, so we had to be very tax aware. Uh, we had to be very mindful of accounting and legal issues, but uh, there was certainly no effort to staff to serve any of those those requirements. Those were done by outside advisors, professional advisors, lawyers, and accountants, and so on. What's remarkable to me is that the platform for services today uh, has expanded into areas that I would never have contemplated. So certainly we have the advanced planning issues, now sometimes internally staffed, not using outside advisors, but we have a whole host of other issues. As an example, uh, issues of household financial management, bill paying, concierge services for large families, personnel management property management the list is really a long long list. Uh, there's a piece of this that all of the firms struggle with as do families which includes technology how is all the how is all this data organized what are what is your method of reporting uh, reporting of course that is is tied to uh, accounting uh, how are you doing all this and so the tech stack comes into play both at either the firm or family level. I'll say further, That was the most remarkable part to me, because I thought this would, uh, I never would have contemplated it. The dialogue has changed. Families of great wealth are expecting their wealth manager or advisor to feather out solutions in areas that get into the purpose of the wealth. uh, The sustainability of the family structure, whether or not they should have a family office. Uh, the notion of family systems, the cultural anthropology of the family. And so these are areas that were traditionally in the area that I the realm of what I would call psychology, uh, sociology. Uh, there are staffs of some firms today that include psychologists. They include historians. And so the nature of the dialogue has changed, in my view, that it's simply outstripped the absolute best advisors' ability to carry the dialogue alone, and firms, as a result, have adapted by having to provide solutions through ensembles, sometimes with specialists. But there is simply very, very few advisors that can carry this dialogue because it has expanded in areas that we wouldn't have imagined, and it does require a lot of specialist support. The reason that I mention that is all of these specialists require embedded cost in the staff, model which erodes margins so it implies you either accept a lower margin business or your partner in uh, the nature of an adjacent partner to find a solution provider that you can work with uh, using your due diligence on on an exclusive basis so it's become harder to deliver those solutions because they're so wide
1: and so deep Interesting. I mean, and and so th- with the technology is changing every industry and how we interact with every industry. We're you know a lot less in person. I, I wonder how you see both technology serving the advisors, what they what they need, what's missing, um, and then also just the interactions through technology and how that's shifting conversations.
0: Well, it's a great question and and one I uh, look at. You you can uh, go online right now and order a, uh, uh, order anything on Amazon, and it'll be delivered at your front door the next day. So there's an expectation that the wealth management firm should be able to deliver information. I use the broader term data assimilation in a more coherent, uh, 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 opti- 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 optically better-looking way. And most of the tech stacks for the wealth management firms are behind uh the they've been underfunded um the, the the nature of the tech stack in terms of providing these solutions really rests on two principles uh for the largest families they need some sort of cash management or accounting system a general ledger approach or their orientation is to the data that they need is much more of a what i'd call portfolio analytics uh or uh, an investment report at the end of the day that they need and uh we don't have solutions today uh we don't have pipes built uh, uh uh application interfaces that really have the general ledger talking to the consolidated report so there's an expectation that I should be able to get all this data in one place it should be nicely organized so that I can do budgeting financial planning investment report analysis all in one place and it hasn't happened uh i asked the, uh, the audience and frankly, the industry at large to ask yourselves, is that technology challenge something we should expect the wealth management industry to deliver? And if they're in the advice business, should they be in the technology business too? So it's a, right now it's a big challenge. I think there are major, uh, fixed costs, uh, that have not yet been absorbed by a lot of fam- by a lot of firms because they're behind. And I believe a lot of the investor families are disappointed by the kind of information they get from the firms. So technology is a big challenge right now.
1: So is there, is there somebody doing better than others? I mean, I've talked with a few interesting firms. Um, have some experience with some, and, and some question like why? Why won't like a broker dealer or some of the big custodians? Why isn't their tech stack? Why is it all unbundled and and you you know you you keep your accounts with one place, but then you have to get all of these different planning and allocation and all sorts of software other places. There's some new firms that are trying to be a service for RIAs that are trying to embed it all with a great uh, slick interface and the the latest technologies that I that I'm hearing. But any? do you think there's somebody well, doing it better than sure, others? Again, I, I, I want to make sure the
0: audience is, is f- focused on the, the notion that the solutions were already hard to do anything to give re- good quality reports to any client, whether you're on a broker, dealer, a bank, a trust company or an RIA. It's already hard. Most of the RAs, as, as I think uh, the audience probably is aware, largely get a lot of their technology through their custodian. But however they're h- operating when we go up to the more complex greater wealth, and, and largely because that, that, that client is using alternative investments, illiquid investments, when we go to that level, the ability to manage the accounting requirements and reporting requirements on alternative investments really challenges all the technology in ways we hadn't imagined before. And so there's a lot of firms that can't deliver quality reports, certainly in a timely manner, uh, that considers the needs of these uh, very large families that have large amounts of illiquid uh, investments and, frankly, other, other, other uh, parts of their balance sheet that are illiquid, whether they be business interest, real estate, uh, and the like. So the reporting process uh, for serving ultra-high-net-worth clients uh, is very challenging. Now, the, the good news is, uh, and it's good news, there's some really great work that's happening. The cloud has revolutionized the ability for you to get browser-delivered solutions uh, that are uh, were traditionally uh, acquired on a point solution basis. You did the deployment, the installation, and the licensing one application at a time. The cloud has really transformed opportunities for wealth management firms to look at firms as providers of integrated solutions. So, you know, you can get your consolidated report and they'll tuck on some tax overlay system into it and and they'll throw in a, a CRM to boot. So there's a lot of configurations that are available today on a commercial basis to solve multiple problems at a much lower cost. The point is the technology is catching up. But it's still largely, it's been a sort of a deferred maintenance issue for most of the wealth management firms. And for almost all of the firms that are in the ultra high net worth space, they are not custodian dependent. They are custodian agnostic. So they work with multiple custodians, and they're all trying to solve this themselves. And for the most part, for the most part, the firms that are leading in the ultra high net worth space, in the RIA land particularly, uh, they've built something themselves they've got their own lamborghini that they've built uh, it's built with multiple applications but there's something proprietary about it
1: We're talking with jamie mclaughlin who is the ceo at jh mclaughlin co a a consultancy for wealth management firms um and sort of has a lot of his, his background in in that space um you know jamie it's it's the as you think about sort of the new wealth versus old wealth is is people coming up in the, a lot of them probably are coming up in the technology industry to some extent, maybe there's new crypto wealth being created. Any, anything you think is, is a characteristic of firms doing something well to tap into this sort of new generational wealth that's being created?
0: Well, this is a big, this big topic, uh, a wonderful question. Let me divide the question in two. Uh, Let's, let's be really clear that there are, is more wealth we know that the demographics of wealth are pronounced a lot, of, a lot more wealth has been made but very importantly it's been made at a younger age there is no question that american wealth is uh, much more entrepreneurial <clears throat> however it was however these ideas and innovations were funded uh, younger wealthy people are being minted every day in areas as you mentioned including technology uh, their requirements, their expectations for information, data assimilation, uh, the ability to mine the data, the ability to create metadata uh, is high. Their expectations for timeliness is high. So, you know, it'll be a real challenge uh, for a lot of those uh, newly minted uh, first generation wealth uh, to uh, get the kind of solutions they want. So I think there's a real question as to how the wealth management industry will adapt. Uh, but separately, in terms of the uh, general approach to new wealth, and not just because technology or fintech uh, is a wealth-creating pocket, there are some real differences uh, in, in, in general, generational wealth for whether or not the family of new wealth wants to stay together whether that family uh, wants to be organized as a sustainable uh, family, and whether that entrepreneurial spirit that created the wealth in G1 wants to stay together. And what I've seen, and it's a wonderful thing to witness, I mean, it's a, it's truly one of the most pleasing things I can share with the audience. You know, there was the caricature of the trust fund baby 25 years ago. Uh, poor Paris Hilton was, you know, was the was the brunt of a lot of jokes um the trust fund, fund baby is out uh it is a myth it doesn't exist anymore uh there is no american aristocracy uh new wealth is being created great wealth is being created and what i say uh, openly whether or not you're um in uh, the camp of elizabeth warren that we need to uh, distribute some of that wealth Uh, What I am pleased to say at close-up observation, that new wealth is more purposeful. It wants to do good. It wants to serve the common wheel. It is in a position today that I think it can do some great things, and it will. And the trust fund baby doesn't exist. So you've got young G2, G3 parts of great wealthy families who are are being organized and very purposeful about what they're doing and I think if I can use this big term, they're disintermediating this old notion that there was a shirt-sleeves-to-shirt-sleeves phenomena that would go on within a family within three generations. Uh, Whether they're using psychologists, whether they're using lawyers, families are creating more sustainable, more durable structures. Uh, They're allowing greater distribution of governance and decision-making, and they're planning to be around for a long time. And I think the purposefulness of great wealth in America uh, is what would characterize, uh, in one sentence, what, what would characterize this new generation of wealth. Uh, it is anything but the trust fund uh, generation.
1: We've got a few minutes left. I, one of the topics that's generate a lot of market activity, I mean, this is great, sort of a high level on what's happening in the, in the family office space and, and REAs there was one of the key market risks has been one of the, the family offices, uh, the Archegos family office that was very levered and, uh, sort of blew up and had a lot of implications across the markets. How unique do you think their situation was anything you would say, any observation from your, your seat on what was going on there and, and any other risks to the market here? Well, let me
0: step back and say that, you know, unrelated to what I do for a living, I I'm, uh, Uh, and God knows I'm not a macroeconomist, but that was what I trained in, I don't believe there is any systemic risk that comes about from Archegos that is at the family office level. It's just my opinion. Uh, But I can assure you, uh, our Department of Treasury, uh, the SEC, and other oversight regulators are looking at any level of potential systemic risk that's coming from this opaque family office land. There's no question uh, nobody's reported that to me, but I just am assuming that's going on. And we and the observers of the family office area, remember, the family office is not a market. It does not indicate yet any any true market phenomena. Uh, we had a decision in the accounting area called Lender. Uh, we had the Dodd-Frank legislation that defined the uh, lineal descendant for the registration exemption, I think the Archegos issue may reset some of the expectations around just how opaque will we allow family offices that are, that are exempt from registration to be in terms of some of the risk that I think really did occur in this particular case, for all intents and purposes, with a family office. So I think people will look at it, and I think there will be some things that will come about that may create a little a little wrinkle, one more element of some compliance standards within the family office world that actually will be largely creating uh, greater visibility, less opacity, and for the regulators, some more assurance that there is not systemic risk. I predict that will happen.
1: And for the banks, I mean, the, the way, I guess the way a lot of this stuff was structured is, is with these swaps and the leverage amounts. And, and it's amazing with some of these big banks in Europe, how much losses, you know, when they are supposedly just – you know, uh, providing exposure to their clients, how much of their losses can, can erode their equity value? Um, it, it's some pretty staggering losses that you're seeing at these banks. So very interesting to see how that evolves. Um, Jamie, where can people find you and information here? Where, where, if they want to follow up with you, where can they find you?
0: Well, my website is uh, www. Uh, jhmclochlin. dot com.
1: <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.
0: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.